I think for us with the vision that we also care for the well-being of our robots, we want to make sure they run. We can observe the data, how they're doing. A robot as a service makes a lot of sense because in the end, you're not, you know, owning your workers, right? You, you, you hire them on a salary. So I think for, from our vision and how we see robotic workforce, I think that resonates very well also with us. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Peter, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks so much, Sylvan. I'm a big fan of the show. That's the best to have a big fan of the show in the show itself. Thank you for joining us today. You are the co-founder and CEO at Anybotics, a robotics company revolutionizing autonomous mobile robots for challenging environments. You actually studied robotics and engineering, not surprisingly, from your bachelor's all the way to your doctorate. And I was just wondering, was the goal to be an academic back in the days or to maybe work for a large corporation? Or did you already have an entrepreneurial bent from the start? Yeah, clearly, it, for me, it was the entrepreneurial journey that I wanted to take. Um, and it all started actually already in the bachelor's where you could choose a project to work on. It's called Focus Project at ETH Zurich, but already back then, we were looking for opportunities to build something, create something on your own. That project is still ongoing. We didn't build a company out of that, but then I soon noticed, wandering through the hallways, that there's an interesting group working on four-legged robots. And I joined that group and already felt the entrepreneurial energy in that group saying, look, we're building together something with the thought eventually when it you know matures that we could launch something together. Where does that entrepreneurial drive come from? Do you have any role models or inspirations from, from your family background or who inspired you to become in a, an entrepreneur in the first place? Not necessarily the family. I think it was always just, a, I was a creative kid, just trying out things, building things, and then always thinking, you know, who can I help with? How can I market this? How can I take what I'm doing out in the real world and, and be proud of it, what I'm doing? And so already as a kid, you know, as many programming websites, doing designs, these kind of things, I already did a little earning on that, uh, doing projects. And that was always fascinating, just doing what you love and then causing, you know, a positive impact for people. And I would say one of the role models is probably Steve Jobs, somebody I've been looking up to for a while and observing and going through the trajectory, very early Mac user and just seeing the revolution of products they've been pushing out. So that's certainly one of the inspirations. Amazing. That's certainly a very good role model to have. So legend has it that Anybotics prototype was built in 2009. I think that was a bit what you were also referring before of the project. You were doing your bachelor's at that time. So were you already involved with the with the project itself, with antibiotics? I was not yet involved. I was actually just one year early in that doing doing my own project. However, it animal also started or the, the story of antibiotics started with a robot called Alof. Um, so that's the first legged robot at ETH Zurich. And one of the students in that team was Andreas Lauber. He is today our head of industrialization, uh, co-founder of the company, very important person. And he and his group started in a group of Roland Sigwart at ETH Zurich. And from there on out, um, Roland had the vision to move that project forward and grow that group from a purely student's project to a research project, including PhDs. And that's then the point where I also joined a couple of years in. 
Nice. So it all started at the ETH in Zurich, but it took about seven years, right, for an actual company to be formed. So 2009, the first prototype, and then in 2016, the actual antibiotics company was legally formed. Walk me through those years. What happened in these seven years from first prototype until the first company formation? Yeah, you know, building robots, it's tough. So it, it takes its time. <laughs> so the, that that's the essence of it. Uh, the the reason is, you know, building a legged robot. We were one of the first groups that used purely electric motors as opposed to hydraulics to build such a robot. Also, a different form factor than others. And you start at the very scratch, right? You're you're using standard industry parts, you know, motors, electronics, and quite soon you'll notice that these parts are not built for a highly mobile and lightweight robot. So you need to dig deeper build your own actuation system, own electronics. And that just takes a tremendous amount of time, build up of research, and then on top, all the software that you need to add. So it started as a, as I mentioned, as a student project and developed into a research project. Um, then new robots were built. One of the robots is Starlet. You can look that up as well online. Um, and then we noticed, hey, this robot starts to walk nicely. So this, the first robots would walk very slowly and clumsy. The second robot could actually already jump and, and, and run around, but it was still very fragile. So we thought it, to make this useful more outside, number one, it needs to have more autonomy, so adding sensors on top, and then it needs to become robust. So, you know, falling on a side or hitting somewhere that shouldn't be a problem. And so we started modularizing the actuators, building a closed body, um, adding more compute so you can add more high-level autonomy. And over the years, we found, yeah, building all the components together with my colleagues. And what happened then is that we put out our YouTube videos and papers, and actually companies would find us, some of the innovators in, in the field, and say, hey, what you're building here is fantastic because we have the problem in industry that we need the eyes and ears on site but none of the technology allows us to do that so flexibly as a robot. And your mm. robot with the legs has the capability to move through these man-made environments. So that gave us you know, the technology, the team that worked together nicely, and a market pull. So a clear picture of what problem we could solve. And so we went ahead and said in 2016, uh, with first custom requests, let's go ahead, let's build robots. That, that's the best way to enter a market, I guess, right? How did these first customers or interested customers find you? Was that through research or how did you spread the word to actually also be seen by these companies? Yeah, these companies did a good job in general to also attend robotics conferences, to look at papers. But then very often what happens is through popular YouTube videos that you get noticed. Somebody sending a friend, look, I've seen this robot. I know that might be interesting for you. So it's just putting out a lot of material, being vocal about it, visible, making it in an entertaining way sometimes. So short videos, you know, back in the days, research wasn't so much in the social media, but we, we started pushing that quite a bit also through Christmas videos. Just very, you know, simple and silly things maybe, um, but they caused a lot of awareness. And so there we placed the seeds essentially um, less deliberately, I think, uh, as we thought, but these led for people to recognize us and see us. And this still carries us uh, to nowadays where we do the same thing, right? Amazing. And how was then these first potential customer contacts? They say, hey, what you're building here is interesting for me. Can I buy that? Or how did these conversations go? I, I want to better understand mm -hmm. that because I could imagine other entrepreneurs out there in, in similar shoes and they try to identify 
when is it actually worth to then double down and really start this company based on customer feedback? So mm-hmm. how did these conversations go? Mm-hmm. So we actually held off of founding a company as long as we could and stay in the realm of ETH, because that, that's an important um, time that you can mature your team and your technology and your market understanding. We started in a company once we had research customers that wanted a copy of the robot because they didn't have the time or the funds to do that. And so that moment gave us early revenue uh, that we, we we could leverage and start essentially copying our machines and have them with others and learn from, from how they're behaving on other sites. Um, but that's a dangerous place to be, too long research, because these were clearly not the customers that would carry us to thousands of robots a year. So we went ahead and said, look, we don't want to be a research company, we want to be a product and a robotic solution company. So, and part of that is really understanding your customer problem and obviously not falling in love with your robot, but exposing it to real world challenges and then really understanding the problem. So that was key at the foundation. We put that into our heart and was one of the main risks we were really looking at. So what we did is just expose even very early prototypes to these environments. So 2018, we had the world's first legged robot offshore on an offshore wind facility because those companies, in this case was Tenet, said their vision is to run these facilities unmanned and they know robots are going to be part of it. So essentially we did POC, so proof of concepts. They were always paid. We never did anything for free for the reason that the customer doesn't see the value in it, then it's probably not that serious. So we always... Right push the customers to that level where they would pay. We attended conferences with them, exhibited with them. Um, We went, yeah, (laughs) really went broad and just said, whenever we go, we bring a robot, we test it, we learn, we talk to the people. And that was actually the founding team. I was out on the field a lot offshore. I have the offshore certification. So really pushing yourself and the team to to learn from the field. I think that was essential. That sounds like a a very organic, but also very smart approach of really developing this understanding. How did you finance your life back then before you had the company formed? Was that one of the advantages of still staying under the ETH umbrella? Mm-hmm. So we had some 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 funding, governmental funding, of course, during our research and the Pioneer Fellowship. And then also we were lucky enough to get uh, funding and, and support from Wies Zurich. That's this incubator, right, between the University of Zurich and ETH Zurich. That gave us the funding for the for the first two years of the company, two and a half years, the infrastructure, and we were able to profit from that. You know, the same PC, software licenses, the mensas, all, all these things that you bother with later as a company and gave us the time and focus to really, yeah, explore the market and mature the product ahead. So that was instrumental for us to be able in the early years of the company. That makes sense. And... I wonder how did the product itself, the robot, develop, you know, from this initial prototype 2009 until you then actually started the company. There has been a lot of iterating, adapting, learning, etc. embedded in the product. So what were the, the key changes that you've made along these seven years? Yeah, you know, tremendous. If you look at all the prototypes, this is now <laughs> the, probably the 10th generation of robot and at each step, you're looking at something different. One of the key aspects in the beginning was to understand robotic locomotion. So how do I get the robot to walk? And there, what you learn is it's less about the precision of where your foot lands, you know, how your joints move, which is very 
more driven like an industrial robot, which is very precise from A to B, but it's more about the forces, right? If we walk around as humans, we can feel something is slippery left and right, and we, we adapt our forces in the joints to that. So that was one of the key learnings that we very early on added springs in the joints to mimic the elasticity of our muscles and tendons. Down the road was clear that for a robot to be able to, for a legged robot to leverage its capability in walking, it, needs, it starts to see, it needs to see the terrain, it needs to be awareness where are the obstacles. So adding a lot of perception on the robot and combining that with the locomotion was a key aspect. Um, and, and there, of course, autonomy, the mission planning, all these things built on top. And on the other side, on hardware, we were able to leverage a lot of the technologies that became available, sensors. Um, now we have LIDARs in our mobile phones. We're using LIDARs on the robot, stereo cameras, better compute, graphics cards eventually. Um, and one of the key aspects is how you build hardware that's lightweight um, and, and modular and robust. Today, our robots are fully water and dust proof. Of course, in the beginning, they were very open. And now we have robots that are EX certified, meaning that we can send them into environment that are explosive and they couldn't cause a problem. They couldn't cause a spark. So we really wow. go deeply down to the thermal management system. So it's going from really early robot prototype to fully industrial grade, mass producible, cost optimized robot. And there's many, many steps in between. Um, it took us 10 years to get where we're at. Uh, it's a fascinating, but also a tough journey. I can imagine. You mentioned the customers, right? Understanding their problems. Um, you know, by our research, we saw that you work with customers for with industries like power and utilities, oil and gas, or also chemicals. What are the, the problems, the challenges that you solve for them with your robots? Yeah, if you look at all these heavy industries, they are you know, a need of a lot of digitalization and automation. And what we see in manufacturing and warehousing, robotics has really been able to revolutionize these industries. Now, in the heavy industries, as you mentioned, power, utilities, oil and gas chemicals, they still rely on the physical presence of hundreds and thousands of people per day. Number one problem with that is they don't find the people to go around to get those jobs done. Young people, they don't want or not around to, 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 to do those jobs. So it's just in Europe in this, by 2030, there's 1.5 million plant operators missing. Another topic is then this is a lot of manual work involved. Um, and people with our eyes and ears are not capable, are just not designed to collect and analyze all the data that's coming from these plants. And you can, of course, install sensors, and this is being done, but it doesn't scale. You cannot scale. You cannot add a sensor for every single problem. It's also very costly. So still today, you have people going around, and that's a repetitive uh, job that also in potentially dangerous environments. And the last piece is humans are still number one error for accidents. This is devastating for the operations, for the people, the environment. And so what they're looking for is really into robotics to can we automate and digitize some of these tasks. And the, their main goal is productivity and safety. Um, and their robotics has a, can have a major impact. This sounds like almost too good to be true because you help them to continue mission critical work that is hard and harder to get, to get done by humans. And at the same time, you help them to do that better by eliminating the normal human error rate. That's a fantastic pitch. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. In, in that regard, I also wonder, you know, in, in these times, it's also very important to think about the environmental impact that your solutions, your products have. 
So how can the animal also help these companies that you work with to reduce their, their in environmental impact? Yes, there's, I'll give you three examples. One topic sure. is fugitive gases that in every joint in, in a pipe, you, you have micro gas leaks, but they accumulate. So finding those gas leaks is a tedious task by human that also needs to be done by law, but we can help automate and find gas leaks earlier, methane gas, etc. And so that's through fugitive gas. That's a, that's a big topic. Second topic is often around transportation. If you imagine offshore oil and gas or wind energy, you have helicopters flying out every week. Those helicopter flights, they it's number one, it's very costly, so you can help on that, and they spend a lot of generate a lot of CO two. That's another aspect. And then the third one is when we productize or optimize the production, you can reduce waste. Right by recognizing, let's say, hotspots or leakages, etc. Um, there's certain problems that occur to the material itself that's then going to waste in the manufacturing process. So by helping detecting problems earlier, you're reducing waste. Again, a positive impact for the environment. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like all three together, like a very good contribution for all your clients. I wonder also the terms of AI. It's a very hot topic at the moment. So how do you at Anybotics build or embed AI-driven features that are actually useful for your robots and in the end for your clients? Yeah, that's a fascinating story. Also, one I think that a lot of people can relate to. I did my PhD on writing and programming the robot to perceive the environment and, and to learn how to walk. So very mathematically described on how it's supposed to do that. And you can get quite far with advanced physics and engineering and controls, but eventually you'll hit the ceiling where the limiting factor is the human that's in the loop and programming these robots. Now, over the last years, and also in close collaboration with ETH, we have been pioneering to let the robot learn itself to walk. Now, we don't have the time, you know, to give it multiple years as a kid to grow up, but what we do, we simulate thousands of robots in a simulation in a virtual environment, that's physics-based, and the robot can explore this environment in an accelerated fashion and start creating its own neural network. Now, overnight, we can create such a neural network. It converges nicely, and then we can transfer that on the physical robot. And it sounds simple, but if you do all of that work right, magic happens. So today, our robot for the last 24 months uh, have been deployed with our customers fully based on AI-based reinforcement learning. Uh, it's extremely robust. It behaves fantastically in unforeseen environments, even you know if it's slippery, if it doesn't see correctly, etc. So it, it's really getting there where you can get the most out of your hardware based on these AI-based uh, methods. And of course, we're doing the same topics on, you know, manipulation is a big topic. How do you start interacting with the environment? That's a difficult task. So AI will help us there. Also perceiving the environments. How do you all the cameras that are on the robot, how do you get the valuable information out and filter out the task or finding the anomalies and derive from there the task? We're using computer vision and AI again. So AI for us is really penetrating all of these more classical algorithms and helping us, our robots and our customers, to achieve the best results. It's so cool to hear the, the real practical example, how you embed and use and leverage AI in the end. That's so cool. And now that we got to know your products and also the history a bit better, of course, you also wonder, how do you actually make money with your company? What is your business model behind the robots that you offer? Yeah. 
So it's very close to our mission statement, of what we call creating a workforce of autonomous robots. So we're not in the business to just sell a platform, but for us, it's really using robotics to solve our customer problems. So what we do mostly is we say you can hire a robot to get the job done. We call it robotics as a service. Uh, there's a fee to it. This is in the standard configuration around 8,000 8, Swiss francs per month, where you can get your own robot, including the hardware, software, and the services that we provide. So that's a scalable model that's really been perceived positively by our customers that say, look, I'm not in the business of buying robots. I just want to get the job done. And if I, if I can right. hire a robot, that's fantastic. So that's really close to how we think of it. We also have the alternative model where you buy, you purchase the hardware, and you pay for the software licenses. It's a little bit like a, a server that you would buy and, and, and get the, the software to it. So we have both models. Um, and then we typically have multi-year contracts with customers. Right now we're in the phase of they're getting their first couple of robots and now going to expansion mode. They see the positive benefits, they're seeing their ROIs and want to get more robots to replicate the learnings on different sites. I see. Is there any of the business models you just described, is any more preferred by customers? Is it really the as a service, robot as a service, that is the preferred option that your customers go for? It depends. In some geographies and also the way they have budget allocation, they say, look, I need to spend this money now and then they purchase or even purchase the software as a lifetime license. What we found, though, is that happens typically at the beginning when they, they, they get yeah. their first couple of robots. Once they go into the more operational mode, they actually prefer not owning assets. So there's a trend in the industry to use more OPEX instead of CAPEX. And so mm -hmm. that resonates very well our RAS model with their tendency to, to, to lease or rent uh, the services that they get. Got it. And do you have any preference from a business model perspective, from your company perspective? Do you prefer one or the other economically? They, they have both the, the, the pros and cons, right? I think it's pretty clear upfront payment versus, but we have a good setup where, where we can depict both of them um, quite sustainably. I think for us with the vision that we also care for the well-being of our robots. We want to make sure they run. Uh, we can observe the data, how they're doing. I think the ROS model, the robot as a service, makes a lot of sense um, because in the end, you're not you know, owning your workers, right? You, you, you hire them on a salary. Yeah. So I think for, from our vision and how we see robotic workforce, I think that resonates very well also with us. Yeah. And I can also imagine, you know, if you think about the valuations, right? Usually if you have recurring revenue, that's usually a big valuation driver. So if you have the full robot as a service, it's probably a higher valuation driving from a company perspective than having hardware sold one time and software as recurring revenue. Absolutely. It's one part, of course, is valuation, but it's, it makes, gives you a, a, a recurring business that you can better predict. So that's certainly True. helpful, right? The predictability of your yeah. business through recurring revenues, that's also a big driver, yes. A hundred percent. I also want to talk about some challenges or obstacles along the way. The, the first one is basically you came out of research and then you built the company. So I was wondering the whole IP topic, that's usually something that is very well defined, what goes where and how you process that. But I wonder, how do you solve that with the ETH that you did a research and then started the company? Was that an easy process for you? Or was that also a bit of a challenge to really sort the IP? Because I imagine investors want to see some IP in the company. So how mm -hmm. do you do that? 
Yes, it, it was actually a pleasant process uh, with ETH because we knew from the beginning that ETH will also be an important partner for us. So we made sure that we started off on, on very good grounds together. Now, in addition, we received this funding from Vis, so that also helped us in forming that partnership. Um, we were able to take out the entire IP that we built, that I built and my colleagues built over our PhDs and masters and get that into the company um, and had a clear separation and ETH was and ETH is also a stakeholder in the company, right? And so for them is is a very positive and mutually reinforcing relationship. So I think that process went as good as it could. And we're very thankful for, for the process here that ETH allowed us to do. Of course, over the years, what you need to do is create your own IP. And I mean, for the last, we, we have a, more than 100 people now for the last seven years, created a lot of IP. We filed a lot of patents. So Today, we can show clearly that we created our own IP over the years and the investors are very happy about what we built up here. I think that's like a key, a really great example of the ETH spin-off label, basically how you took what you were working on and then even made more patents and more IP out of that. I think that's, yeah, fantastic ETH spin-off story. The second challenge I want to talk about is robotics companies are often faced with criticism for taking away jobs, right? In anybody's case, you basically are taking away dangerous and difficult jobs or even filled jobs that otherwise would be very difficult to fill, as we just learned. Have you nevertheless faced some criticism regardless? Yeah, that story of robots taking away jobs, we hear often from from the media, especially, you know, right. it, it's playing to the fear of a public, what happens in reality with our cars. And I, I don't get me wrong, I understand that view and we want to be quite transparent around it. So in our experience, what's happening in, I mentioned in the beginning, one of the big challenges for our customers is not finding the people, meaning that people go into retirement, they don't find the young people. So what happens is for the workforce, the human workforce that they have, they want to give them the best tools to let them focus on really the task they should accomplish. So they take away the routine and repetitive tasks and essentially leverage those tools so that the rest of the workforce can focus on the value added, more creative and decision-making activities. And funny enough is our customers are actually using a robot for recruiting purposes. So they go out and say, hey, look, if if you come to work with us, we have these cool robots. You'll, in addition to becoming a plant operator, you'll also be a robotics operator. And that's very attractive for young people to see innovation. So it's the world is actually quite different than what the ex external perception uh, might make you believe. That's so cool. That's probably something that you did not expect to happen when you first started out. <laughs> no, it's, we were actually also, you know, we really appreciated the customer doing that because it makes that also public on how, how they see robots. It's never about replacing people, but help, helping their people. Yeah, it's a partnership, basically. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Then the, the next topic I want to talk about is you're now an international company. And I, I just wonder how did you actually manage to go international with your, not only the people, but basically also the sales force and how do you acquire customers in an international setting? Can you talk a bit more mm -hmm. about how you do that at Antibiotics? For us, the difficulty was from the beginning, we needed to be international. If you, for example, focus only on Switzerland or the Dach region, there's just too little industry for us to get started. Mm -hmm. And so from the beginning, we're exposed internationally. We hired internationally. English was always the standard language for us. And I think in that regard, COVID also helped us that people understood you, you don't need to be always physically present 
but online um, interactions can work quite well. And we're pushing that to, you know, live demos, um, online visits, etc. So, and from the beginning, we were drawn in internationally. We're lots in the US, the Asia Pacific, UAE, of course, also Europe, in South America and Brazil. And we very quickly learned how to deal with those large customers internationally. Now, we're still are headquartered completely in Zurich. This will change in the future. Uh, but from this yeah, central place, we work out and send our field, field engineers and the robots out. And there's two ways we also collaborate. This one is partnerships internationally. So the sales partnerships is one. So we have sales partners in Brazil, in the US, and that's growing. And the other side that we're building up is servicing stations together with partners. So we're not intending to have thousands of, robo- you know, of people for servicing around the world, but rather leverage existing networks that already exist. And can you talk a bit more about these partnerships? How does that exactly work? So if one company in, in Brazil, for example, becomes a sales partner of Anybotics, how, how do you work together? I assume you don't have them on the payroll, but you probably pay them commissions for deals that they get, or how does that work? These companies typically, and there needs to be a minimum size, right? They need technical expertise and they're typically already involved either in some sort of digitalization and and, and robotics or robotic devices, I would say, or they already do servicing for companies on site. So they essentially, they lend their people and expertise uh, and see robotics as part of that. Um, So what happens typically, the step number one, they purchase a demo robot, Right, and we also want to see some commitment from their side, so they can go around demo it, understand it. We train them on the hardware, software, on our sales process, all of these topics, and then they get a certain geography they're responsible for. And from there on out, that either we bring them customers because if customers find us, we forward it to to that partner who can take care locally, or they go out and find their own customers or already have customers that are interested in robots and combine this. And then, yes, I mean, they, they get commission on it um, and, you know, hardware software is different models, but it's really going down in a mutually benefiting partnership and we help them as much as possible because it's we, we really see it in the long term and being very transparent both ways. Internationally, do you sell exclusively through partners or do you also have your own sales force going after customers? We sell also with our own workforce internationally, especially in the countries where we don't have a partner yet, and especially with the companies that are quite international. So if you work with a shell, with the big companies that are international, we tend to work with them directly. Got it. So if I understand that correctly, do the things that need to be done locally, like sales or also the servicing part, that's something that you also work on with partners, but I assume mostly of the development, the IP part, et cetera, that's probably what you keep in Switzerland centralized. Yes. So the how we work is the core technology stack, the robot, the basic software, the user interfaces, that's all developed by us as really this seamless experience. Yeah. Now we do partnerships um, with, that's a different sort of partnership with external, let's say software and hardware or sensor provider. So, for example, we're working with Hexagon or Leica Geosystems that have a special sensor that we then purchase from them. We integrate it closely, collaborating with them on APIs, etc. And we certify the whole system and our, can then sell this unit together with their sensor to our customers. So it's on a different end, right? So essentially a partner for us in development and extending the capabilities of the robot. Fantastic. 
We once interviewed your co-founder, Hans Peter, back in 2021. And that was roughly a year after your 20 million Series A round. Now, in May 2023, you raised a Series B round, this time of 50 million. Things are getting really serious here, Peter. And I just wonder, how were you able to raise that amount of money in a very, very difficult environment that we see now with economy slowing down, VC funding slowing down? How were you able to pull that Series B round off? Yeah. So what we were able to do from the Series A, there we had a great vision and a prototype. Now, the time uh, with the Series A, we're very thankful for the investors that came in, including Swisscom Ventures, that saw the potential. And with those 20 million, and of course, selling robots, we're able to build two robots, Animal D, that we fully industrialized, and Animal X, the explosion-proof version that we announced last year. And through the visibility of these two robots, and especially the Animal X, which is the world's first and only EX-proof legged robot, which is a very important certification, we were able to create a lot of pre-orders, reservations um, for, for about 500 robots, right? Wow. We can now play into that pipeline um, and, and, and essentially scale. We had first customers over the last 18 months that had first robots, saw the ROI and reordered. So this entire commercial wheel started to spin and, and the customers were, spoke very highly of us. That was the right time to raise a Series B and also have this international um, view on it and were able to convince, yeah, now Walton Catalyst, NGP, Bessemer, so really Silicon Valley based because they saw the potential of these wheels spinning and through their support, getting us more international and getting us into scaling mode. Did you have any tough conversations now that, you know, the economy is slowing down, VC money is getting more difficult to obtain? Did you have any tough conversations about devaluation, et cetera, or because of the strong track record that you've built with the two products you just mentioned, this was not really a big discussion point? No, certainly. I mean, the slowing down economy led to the fact that we, it took longer for us and it was certainly tough to raise the Series B. We would have imagined a couple of months, but it actually took us many, many more than that. So we raised also additional convertible loan in between. Um, and through that time, actually, the wheel even started to spin more. So it, it helped for us to, to win that time. Now, certainly on valuation, there's a big discussion. And I think in different environments and also being if we were a Silicon Valley company, the valuations would have looked different. But it's still it's a positive round for us. It's an, it's an up round. Um, so we're happy about the result, um, but the negotiation, you know, position, we were not in an extremely strong position given what's happening in the world. Fair point. And I'm, of course, also curious to learn what the funds will be used for. So what are your plans with the 50 million raised? Yeah, there's two directions. One is going more international. So building offices internationally, that's in the US, Asia Pacifics, UAEs, getting more feet on the ground as hubs in addition to the partners that we have locally, cranking up operations. Uh, we already outsource manufactured, but we can do much more and, and get you know from hundreds of robots to thousands of robots per year. And of course, creating new capabilities for the robot. That's super exciting that we have the hardware now installed with customers and through software updates, we can give the robot additional capabilities. Now, you know, imagine suddenly the robot can detect corrosion under insulations, these kind of topics that create a lot of value that wasn't possible before just through a software update. And then of course, we want to start 
not only perceiving the environment, but manipulating it, interacting with it. Imagine turning a lever, open a cabinet, take a sample of a chemical, etc. So there's vast potential to also starting to automate these manual uh, tasks in the industry. That sounds like a super exciting future ahead of you. And just curious to see your perspective on that. What role or what thoughts do you have regarding a potential IPO one day or maybe a trade sale? Yeah, I mean, right now we're, we're really focused on building a world leader uh, in robotics. And we're very proud to be able to do that out of Switzerland and now also with international support. I think many of us would dream of an IPO. I think that that's a goal we're headed towards. If a sale, uh, something in between would even be more, you know, successful for us in terms of achieving our mission, that's an option. But right right now, we're really focused on to make this the, a fantastic company and, and grow this as quickly as possible to the level where it needs to be. I love that you said becoming the world leader or being the world leader in that space, because I sometimes feel that our Swiss mindset is not something where we actually go and chase to be the best in the world. We say, I'll be the best in Switzerland. That's fine enough. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? This, this ambition to be the best in the world? I think it's a realization that robotics on that level, all the funding that has gone into it, right? It's very high entry barriers. So we have the opportunity to build something here. Tremendous, but Switzerland obviously is not, not the market we can focus on. This has to be international by the type of device it is. And, and I think all of us are extremely ambitious. If we go for some, something, we want to be the best in it. And the best is the definition of what you mean by it. But for us, best means just internationally, you need to be leading to get into the realms of thousands of robots where you can drive down the cost. Also, if you look at our customers, they need a sizable company that can support them internationally. So we have to play in that game field to be able to succeed. I'll be certainly cheering from the sidelines to hope to see the Swiss world leader you know, hopefully doing an IPO one day, who knows? Super cool. So Peter, to wrap up the conversation today, I have some rapid fire questions for you. I gave you either a short question or different options to choose from, and you have to answer in one sentence, ideally. You ready? Sure. Let's go. As a kid, who was your favorite robot? I would say Wally from the movie. I, I love Pixar movies and Wally is a fantastic, cute robot. Nice. And as a grown-up, who's your favorite robot today? Of course, Animal. I couldn't pick between Animal and Animal X, but uh, yeah. the Anybotics robots, we're very proud of them. And these are our favorites. That makes sense. And throughout your whole Anybotics journey, have you ever felt like giving up and saying, hey, we tried, but this will not work. I'll just quit and leave. No, no. <laughs> the, the reason is we started knowing that it's going to be a tough journey. So giving up is not an option and never crossed our mind. Sounds like some smart expectation management. <laughs> and the last question for you today, how do you celebrate your closing of the Series B round? We haven't done the full celebration yet. So we, when we closed it, Frederick and I, our, our CFO, came back from the lawyers uh, with the signatures and, and the closing. And we had a little celebration, a little speech. We had the investors sharing a video congratulating us. That was very an emotional moment also for our staff. But we're still uh, setting the date for a bigger celebration with the entire staff. So a big party is still coming up. It's been just a couple of days since or a couple of weeks since we closed. So certainly also another thing to look forward to. Absolutely. 
Peter, it was a lot of fun to record this episode with you. Thank you so much for making the time and coming on the show. And I wish you lots of success and all the best for the future. Super exciting to see what you're building and where you're going with the company. Thanks so much, Sylvan. It's been a pleasure and looking forward to it, to hearing many more great episodes from the Swisspreneur. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.